In Galatians chapter 3, you notice verses 15 through 25. Galatians chapter 3, I invite you to turn there. 1,338. Using the New Testament under the seat in front of you. Really want to encourage you to read along with us tonight in the scripture. It's very important that that'll uh, keep your attention on what the word of God is saying. So Galatians chapter 3, verse 15 through 25. Let's pray. Lord, you have commanded us to be good students of your word. And as good students, we need to be able to rightly divide your word. So that means you want us to understand how all of your revelation works together. Old Testament, New Testament, everything that you have revealed. So I pray that you would help us to understand that tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. So remember the question I asked you last week, and it was very It's a very challenging question. If you had a Jewish friend who rejected all New Testament revelation, could you prove the doctrine of salvation through faith alone in Christ Jesus from the Old Testament? Could you teach your Jewish friend from the Old Testament that salvation is not according to the law of the Old Testament? but according to faith alone. How many of you could do that? Raise your hand. No, I'm kidding. I'm not going to put anyone on the spot. But if you don't know how to do that, you're in the right place in the New Testament because that's what Galatians does. Here in the book of Galatians, Paul proves the doctrine of salvation through faith alone, apart from the law, and he proves it from the Old Testament. So remember that in this argument that Paul's making, he took us back to Abraham. Abraham shows up in the Bible, Genesis chapter 12, the man of faith. And Paul asked us, how did that guy get saved? How did Abraham get saved? Tells us in Genesis 15, 6, he, Abraham, believed the Lord and it was accounted to him For righteousness. Abraham got saved through faith alone. And God accounted him for righteousness. Now remember, Paul goes on to argue that Abraham's sort of like the prototype of how everyone gets saved. Anyone who is truly saved throughout all of history is saved only in the way that Abraham was saved, and that was through faith. Abraham was saved through faith, not by the works of the law. Abraham was around 430 years before there was a law. That's a very compelling argument. Then you remember that Paul took us to this little book of prophecy in the Old Testament, Habakkuk, And right there in chapter 2, verse 4, this is the Old Testament speaking. 
It says, Behold the proud, his soul is not upright in him, but the just shall live by his faith. Literally, those that are justified by faith live. So again, in the Old Testament, a clear, perfect example of what it says, salvation comes through faith alone. Okay, so we're going to continue Paul's proof from the Old Testament tonight. And for that, we're going to go back again to Abraham. Now look at verse 15. Read this with me carefully. Paul says, brethren, I speak in the manner of men. Though it is only a man's covenant, yet if it is confirmed, no one annuls or adds to it. Now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. He does not say, and to seeds, plural, as of many, but as of one, and to your seed, Singular, who is Christ. And this I say, that the law, which was 430 years later, cannot annul the covenant that was confirmed before God in Christ, that it should make the promise of no effect. For if the inheritance is of the law, it is no longer of promise. But God gave it to Abraham by promise. Okay, so track this argument. It's brilliant. In verse 15, Paul says, I'm going to speak in the manner of men. In other words, let's talk about human affairs for a moment. Let's talk about life in human terms. Let's talk about an everyday example from everyday life. When human beings in everyday life enter into a formal arrangement, when they enter into a contract, when they enter into a covenant, and they establish that covenant, both sign on the dotted line. It's confirmed. It's established. Then that promise, that covenant, stands. It can't be changed or added to or replaced later in the future indiscriminately. So that's true. Think about a last will and testament. So a person produces his last will and testament, and he says how his inheritance is to be distributed after he dies. So he writes it. He signs his name on the dotted line. It's confirmed. It's certified. That's the deal. Now, when he dies... It can't be altered. It can't be changed. Although there might be some greedy relatives that would try to do that, right? Depending on how rich the man is. Or think of it this way. You take out money. You got a mortgage from the loan. You got a mortgage with the bank. You guys both sit down at the table, you and the representative of the bank. You come to terms on how much you're going to pay, what the fixed interest rate is going to be. And you sign on it. That sets it in place. Somebody can't come along later in the future. The bank can't come and alter it and change it. 
Just like a relative after the guy who made the will has died can come along and say, well, you owe me so much more. Or I'm, the will promises me this. You can't change it. That's the example that Paul has given. When mere men in everyday life enter into formal contracts, they're lasting. They can't be annulled, changed, or replaced. Okay, God entered into a contract with Abraham. Verse 6, 16. Now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. He does not say, and to seeds as of many, but as of one into your seed who is Christ. So in Genesis chapters 12 through 22... God entered into a contract with Abraham. God made promises to Abraham. And it's a a famous covenant. I mean, the, the Bible scholars refer to this very special arrangement between God and Abraham and his seed as the Abrahamic covenant. It's a big deal. God signed the dotted line on that. So what did God promise Abraham? Well, he promised him lots of things. He promised Abraham that he would be the father of many nations, and that came true. Abraham became the father of many nations, Ishmael, Isaac, others. Born to him after his wife Sarah died, and he remarried. God promised that Abraham would be the father of the chosen nation, the special nation of God, Israel. That happened. God also promised to Abraham that his special nation, Israel, would be given the land of Israel. Promised. And by the way, I think that promise is still valid today. In my thinking, that land in Israel belongs to Israel. There's no negotiations between that. God gave it to Abraham to the nation that would come forth from Abraham. So we know about those promises, but think about these ones. This is when God called Abraham. Way back in Genesis 12, get out of your country from your family and from your father's house to a land that I will show you. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great and you shall be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and I will curse him who curses you. And check this one out. In you, Abraham... All the families of the earth shall be blessed. That's the Abrahamic covenant. God promised that in Abraham, all the families of the earth, all the nations, Jew, Gentile, every nation, every tribe, every family, would be blessed in Abraham. And how is it possible for all the nations and families of the earth to be blessed in Abraham? Well, they have the potential to be saved in the same way that Abraham was saved. Through faith. Abraham's the prototype. God's covenant with Abraham is that all people will be saved like you were saved. Through faith alone. Okay, look at this 
promise that God made to Abraham in Genesis chapter 22. Now, Genesis chapter 22 is a very important chapter in the Bible. Does anybody remember what happened in that chapter? God asked Abraham to sacrifice his one and only son, Isaac. Took him to Mount Moriah. And Abraham was going to kill his only his son. And right as the knife's about to go down, the angel of the Lord says, nope, 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 nope. And there in that chapter, it says, the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time out of heaven and said, by myself I have sworn, says the Lord, by myself I have sworn, notice, says the Lord, because you have done this thing and have not withheld your son, your only son, blessing I will bless you and multiplying I will multiply your descendants as the stars of the heaven and as the sand which is on the seashore and your descendants shall possess the gate of their enemies. In your what? Seed. All the nations of the earth shall be blessed. So that's the Abrahamic covenant. I promise you, Abraham, in your seed, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. Well, now who's the seed? Well, look at verse 16. Now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. He does not say, and to seeds, as of many, but as of one, and to your seed, who is Christ. Who's the seed? Christ. All the nations of the earth will be blessed in your seed, Christ. Now, I want you to notice that Paul is doing some heavy-duty exegesis in the law of Moses. His whole argument revolves around whether a word is in the plural or the singular. He points out from the law that the promise is in your seed, singular. All the nations of the earth shall be blessed. It doesn't say in your seeds. So all the nations of the earth are not going to be blessed through your descendants. Plural. All the nations of the earth are going to be blessed through a very special descendant. One descendant. The seed, capital S. Christ. Christ. By the way, remember we just studied on Sunday that Jesus said the law is inspired and important down to the jot and the tittle? Remember that? It absolutely is. Right down to whether a word is singular or plural. So the Abrahamic covenant, the promise that God made to Abraham, you put all that together. Is people will be blessed in you because they will be saved like you through faith alone. And all of that made possible through your seed. Christ. That's the gospel message. That's the gospel message. That's the message that changes people's lives. You're not saved by keeping any law. You're not saved by doing good works. You're saved through faith in Christ. 
because of what he did at the cross for your sins. It all points to that. It's all fulfilled in that. Okay. God made that promise to Abraham 430 years before there was a law of Moses, right? God made a permanent law, uh, promise to Abraham, entered into the Abrahamic covenant right there, 430 years before the law. So what does Paul write in verse 17? And I say, the law which was 430 years later cannot annul the covenant that was confirmed before God in Christ that it should make the promise of no effect. So Paul is saying, you see, this covenant was made with Abraham. The law came 430 years later. It didn't annul the, the promise. Didn't alter the promise. It didn't replace the promise. Remember, even a human agreement. Those things can't be altered in the future. The law didn't change the promise that was made to Abraham. It doesn't replace the promise. In other words, God gave Abraham the gospel long before God gave Moses the law. And the gospel promise to Abraham lasts. This does not change it. Or you can think of it this way. The Christian religion is the religion of Abraham, not of Moses. It's of promise, not of law. It's of faith, not of works. Real easy to track, easy to understand. God gave Abraham that promise. People will be saved through faith alone because of what the seed of Abraham will do. This law comes along later, can't alter that. Okay, so at this point, you should have a question going on in your mind. A very obvious question. And what is it? Why a law? What's the purpose of the law? So God gave that promise to Abraham... And then 450 years later, God commanded the law to be given to Moses. But that law doesn't alter, change, or replace the promise. So why a law? Now Paul is going to answer that question in our next section. Look at verse 19. What purpose, then, does the law serve? See, a good writer and a good speaker can always anticipate the question of the audience, right? And everyone would be wondering, so what's the purpose of the law? And Paul writes, what purpose, then, does the law serve? Read this carefully with me. It was added because of transgressions. Till the seed should come to whom the promise was made. And it, the law, was appointed through angels by the hand of a mediator. 
Now, a mediator does not mediate for one only, but God is one. Keep reading. Is the law then against the promises of God? Is it contrary to that promise, that Abrahamic promise? Certainly not. For if there had been a law given which could have given life, truly righteousness would have been by the law. But the scripture has confined all under sin that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. But before faith came, we were kept under guard by the law, kept for the faith which would afterward be revealed. Therefore, the law was our tutor to bring us to Christ that we might be justified by faith. But after faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor. Okay, a lot going on there. Sounds really confusing. Do you guys all got it? But we can understand this. Okay? Let's be, meth- let's be real methodical. As we look at this, I want you to notice, first of all, in verses 19 and 20, that Paul gives us two very important details about the law. He tells us, first of all, that the law of Moses was temporary. It was never meant to be permanent. It's temporary. It says, verse 19, the law was added because of transgressions till, till what? Till the seed should come. Who's the seed? Christ. So the law given 450 years after Abraham went into effect with Moses and it stayed in effect till when? Jesus. was never meant to be permanent, temporary. Now, if you look at that timeline, the law was in effect for almost 1,500 years. That's a significant period of time. Would you agree? Yet it was still temporary. It was never meant to be permanent. It ended with Jesus. It ended with Jesus. Now remember what we learned on Sunday morning in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus said, do not think that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. When Jesus came, he didn't like throw away the law. He didn't delete it. He didn't get rid of it. He said, no more. He made it of no effect By fulfilling it. Jesus fulfilled all the demands of the law. All the righteous requirements of the law. The perfect son of God was the only one who was ever able to keep the law of Moses perfectly. And he became the curse for the law. Lawbreakers like us were under the curse. He took the curse. He died on the cross for our sins. Rose again. He fulfills all the sacrificial requirements of the law. All of this 
uh, ceremonial things, the special days, everything pointed to Jesus. He fulfilled the law. So please understand, the law was always meant to be temporary. Not permanent. Now, Paul gives us another really important detail about the law here in verse 19 and 20. He says that the law was inferior to the promise that was made to Abraham. Now, this is probably the most confusing part of the passage. In verse 19, it says that the law was appointed through angels by the hand of a mediator. Okay. When God gave the law to Israel, he gave the God, he gave the law to Moses at the top of Mount Sinai, right? Using angels. Moses then went down the mountain and gave the law to who? The people of Israel. When the law was given, it required a mediator. And a mediator in a covenant means that there are two parties to the covenant. The law was a two-covenant party, a two-party covenant. You had two people, you had two groups that had to agree. God has his responsibility. The nation of Israel had their responsibility. God's responsibility was this. I'm going to bless you. I'm going to be your God. What's Israel's responsibility? They got to keep the law. So God says, I'm going to give you this, this, this law. It's going to be written out all nice. It's even going to be written on stones. It's going to be written in the first five books of your holy book. All you have to do, Israel, is keep that law. You keep your side of the deal, and I'll keep my side of the deal. Well, how did that work out? How did that work out for Israel? Not so good. Why? They couldn't keep their end of the deal. They couldn't keep that perfect law. It was greatly inferior. And by the way, when God gave them the law, he knew that they would not be able to keep the law. So he built the sacrificial system into the law to teach them about atonement for law-breaking. And substitutionary atonement. So that was the arrangement with the law. Now verse 20. A mediator does not mediate for one only, but God is one. So now let's go back to the promise that God made to Abraham. The one that you're saved through faith alone. That was a one-party contract. When God made his promise to Abraham, he was the sole contracting party. This was the strength of the promise. Everything depended upon God and nothing on man. 
No mediator was involved involved because none was needed. The promise contract with Abraham depended solely upon God and his power. Abraham did nothing to work for it, did nothing to earn it, just faith and trust in what God would do. So, very important details about the law. It was temporary. And it was inferior to the promise that God made to Abraham. So now we have this promise that was given to Abraham. 430 years later, this law comes on the scene. It can't alter, change, or replace. And it was meant to be temporary, and it's inferior. So again, what's the purpose of the law? Why was that given? I believe Paul gives us three reasons why the law was given in this passage. And I personally think that they all really go together. They build toward one one main central thing. So I want you to pay very close attention. Number one, the purpose of the law of Moses was to expose sin for what sin really is and to reveal all men and women, you too included women, as sinners, to prove human beings as sinners beyond any shadow of a doubt. Okay, stay with me. Verse 19. The law was added because of transgressions or for the sake of transgressions. The word transgression is a very, very important word to understand. It is a word that means the willful violation of a known law. A transgression is a violation of a known law, a law that's on the books, a law that's formal. The law of Moses turns sins into transgressions. The law of Moses revealed sin for what it really is. Unlawful breaches of God's written righteous standards. Paul would say in Romans chapter 4, where there is no law, there is no transgression. The law was put on place for the sake of transgressions. Now, stay with me. When did sin enter the human race? Way back with whom? Adam and Eve. They fell in the garden. All have sinned. Everyone since Adam has sinned, except for Christ, right? People were sinning before the law of Moses. 
Adam and Eve sinned. Abel sinned. Noah sinned. Abraham was a sinner. Joseph was a sinner. The 12 tribes of Israel were sinners. All were sinners. All were guilty of being sinners. But imagine during that time, a sinner saying, I cannot be condemned for doing wrong if I did not know it was wrong. Now, it was wrong. The law made it a transgression. The law made the nature of sin worse than what it was. It it made sin exceedingly sinful. It's the breach of a law. God's law. There's a great example that I've liked to use over the years. Doesn't that look like a beautiful road? How fast do you think you should go on that road? I think if you go over 50, you're a sinner. You shouldn't go over 50 miles per hour on that road. You shouldn't go 60 or 70 or 80 or 90 or 100. That's reckless. That's dangerous. If you do that, you're a sinner. What if I put a speed limit on that road? The stops, miles per hour limit. 40 miles per hour. Now what happens if you go more than 40 miles per hour? You've broken a known law. You've trespassed. That speed limit sign? The law. It made everyone aware. On the books... Formal. This is what sin is. You don't have an excuse anymore to say, well, I didn't know. Paul gives another example in Romans chapter 7. He says, I would not have known sin except through the law. He says, for I would not have known covetousness unless the law had said you shall not covet. See what it does? It literally makes sin more sinful, more grievous. And then look what it says down in verse 22. The scripture has confined all under what? Sin. The scripture or the law, as it's being used there, has confined all people under sin. So the law puts mankind in prison. It confines mankind in the prison cell called sin. The law of Moses was meant to utterly destroy self-righteousness. To destroy the idea that any of us could be good enough. 
It absolutely exhausts us. It makes us helpless and hopeless before God. One person put it, the purpose of the law was, as it were, to lift the lid off man's respectability and disclose what he's really like underneath. Sinful, rebellious, guilty, under the judgment of God and helpless to save himself. That's why the law was given. I think there's another reason why the law was given. To restrain sin. The law was given to the nation of Israel temporarily for 1,500 years to restrain sin in their nation. To serve as a check against sin. To curb sin. I say that because look at verse 23. But before faith came, we were kept under guard by the law. In other words, the guard was, the law was like a guard for the nation of Israel to protect them. The law was like a security agent, a guard, who is constantly saying to you, you can only come this far, man. Don't do this, don't do that. Meant to curb, restrain the sin of the nation of Israel. Look down at verse 24. Therefore the law was our tutor. The law was our tutor. Now when you think of a tutor, I know you think like me. You're thinking of that nice college student who helps high school students with math after school, right? Don't think of it that way. Paul is using the Greek word paedagogos, speaking of a specific tutor, a nanny, a governess. In those days, among wealthy Greek families, they had children and they had a lot of servants. And they had specific nannies or paedagogos to raise the kids, to watch over the kids age 6 to 16 or puberty, whichever came first. Two primary roles of the Pythagogus, the nanny, the governess, was to safeguard the kid from any outside harm. Specifically in those days, from any immorality. So the tutor was with those kids from 6 to 16, protecting them from any outside evil influences. The tutor was also the disciplinarian. I mean, you look at some of the paintings that have been found of these people. They're always carrying um, rods. They were intense disciplinarians. Their job was to keep those kids in line. And so the law is like a guard and Nanny McPhee, right? The law was meant to restrain sin in the nation of Israel during those 1,500 years. And it works on 
You know, the law does have a very important place to play in society. Law, even laws of our country, are very important. They keep sin in check. That's why God tells us in the New Testament to respect those who are in law. Imagine a society that's total anarchy with no law. What would it look like? Ugly, ugly, ugly. I mean, society is still ugly and there is law, right? But at least it restrains it. Think of what the people were like in the days of Noah leading up to the flood. You remember what the Bible said about them? There was no law. It was anarchy. What happened? It said every single person on planet Earth was exceedingly weak wicked inside continually. There was no restraint. So bad it was that, as you know, God wiped everyone off and started over again with Noah and his wife and family. So law has its purpose. The law was given to Israel to keep them from becoming like all of the other pagan nations, to keep them from the idolatry and all the wickedness. So again, I have to ask you, did that work? It restrained sin. Lasted for about 1,500 years, right? But still, what happened to the nation of Israel? They became like the pagan nations around them. They became idol worshipers. Do you realize the nation of Israel worshipped a god named Molech and sacrificed babies to it? So, once again, the law exposed them as helpless, hopeless sinners. The law demonstrated over a very long period of time, 1,500 years, that man is sinful and helpless and hopeless on their own. And even though it would be a restraint, it wouldn't work. Incredible. What's the third purpose? This puts it all together. The purpose of the law was to bring people to faith in Jesus Christ. To bring people back to the promise that was given to Abraham. Faith through salvation. Or salvation through faith alone. Look what it says in verse 22. The scripture has confined all under sin. That the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Do You see, the law was put in place. Till and it pushed people towards Christ. Verse 23, before faith came, we were kept under guard by the law. Kept for what? For the faith, which would afterward be revealed. It's a preparatory thing. The law is prepping people to be ready for faith in Christ. Verse 24, the law was our tutor to bring us to Christ, that we might be justified by faith. I mentioned two of the responsibilities of those nannies. They had another responsibility. Take the kids to and from school. They weren't the teachers. They were the ones that brought 
the kids to the teachers. And in that sense, the law is like a teacher or a a nanny that brings you to the teacher, to the concept of faith alone in Christ. The law was put on the books ultimately, long-term, to bring sinful mankind to Jesus. And how did that work? The law is like this 1,500-year experiment played out on the nation of Israel, but meant to show all of humanity You can't keep a law. You are sinful. You are exceedingly sinful. You are hopeless and helpless in a prison. It should bring you to this idea my only hope is in God Himself through faith in Him. That's why the law was put in place. Now, I show you something. In verse 21, look at this. It's an important question that Paul asks. He says, is the law then against the promises of God? So that's a really good question. You got the law, and then you got this promise that God made to Abraham. Are they in opposition to each other? Are they in competition to each other? Did God give one way to salvation in Genesis chapter 12 and another way to salvation to Moses? So are there two competing ways? If I keep the law, I'll get saved, or if I place... No. They complement each other. The law serves the purpose of the promise to Abraham. Or you could think of it this way. The law has a very important purpose. It gives the diagnosis. It's like the doctor who tells you what's wrong with you. The law says you're a sinner. The law is like a mirror that you look into. And it reveals the dirt on your face. Now, can the mirror clean off your dirt? Do you take the mirror and use it to brush the dirt off your face. No, you don't. A doctor who would give a diagnosis but has no cure, no solution, that's the law. The gospel, that's what heals. That's what cleans up the dirt. The law was meant to show you your need for the gospel, which is faith in Christ alone. Or or another way that somebody put it, and I think this is so beautiful, I think it's absolutely brilliant. He said, the law was given to man to make man fully understand that the promise given to Abraham was absolutely indispensable.
God gave that promise to Abraham way back at the beginning. That's the only way. And the law comes along and says, yep. That's right. Gang, there is no way that anybody can get saved through a religion, through good works, through a law. The whole message of the Bible, old, new, is that salvation is only possible because of what God has done. And the only way for us to be saved is to run to Christ. It's through faith in him alone. The Old and the New Testament work perfectly together. To show that. And I got to tell you, that, that gives me a lot of comfort because I know a lot of people who beat themselves up because, oh, they've sinned. Or they've done so many wrong things in their life and I'm just never going to be good enough. I'll never get to heaven. Wait a minute, you could never be good enough. I don't care what you did. You could never be good enough. The law condemns you. The wonderful mystery and joy of the gospel is that God has made it possible for all of us sinners to be forgiven. It's beautiful. That's the message that changes everything. Christian, is there any place at all for law today? That's a trick question because I'm going to say yes. There is a place for law today. And you know where that place is? In the preaching of the gospel. Before you can give people the good news, you have to give them the bad news. And use the law. The law was always meant to convict a person of their desperate need for Christ. So if you want to share the gospel with someone, you got to first bring them to the law and show them they're sinful. You bring them to the law that says, thou shalt not steal. Have you ever stolen? Well, yeah, you broke the law. Thou shalt not lie. Have you ever lied? Well, yeah, you broke the law. The law must be used in that way. In fact, I love it. Somebody said, first you have to come to Moses before you can go to Jesus. You have to come under the law. You have to see it and what it reveals to you. So, yeah, I think we, there is a place for law. In our preaching of the gospel. But is there a place for law. In a Christian's life. Should we ever go back to law. Absolutely not. In fact. What does it say in verse 25. After faith has come. We are no longer under the tutor. If you're a born-again Christian here tonight because you placed your faith in Jesus Christ, you are not under law. You are under grace. You are under grace. You don't have to keep a law. Your Christian life isn't about keeping rules and regulations. It's not about living under the law. 
Because remember, when you place your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, he saves you. And he transforms you. He makes you a new person. And he fills you with his Holy Spirit. And you become a brand new person. And you become empowered by the Lord. A born-again Christian who lives by faith in Christ Jesus, by the power of the Holy Spirit, will please the Lord a whole lot more than some guy trying to keep a law in his own strength. We live under grace. All right. Good study. Lots of meat. No sugar tonight. Meat and potatoes. You know what? We need meat and potatoes. Because as a Christian, you need to know how the Old and New Testament work together. You need to know how they complement one another. And you need to know what the major emphasis of all of Scripture is. Christ died for you, rose again. And you need to place your faith and trust in him for salvation. And that's the message you preach. Using the law to convince people of their need for Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, thank you. Thank you for your amazing word. I want to thank you for this book called Galatians. What an amazing. Thank you for showing us these things. I pray that not only we would, would we understand these things, but we'd be able to explain these things to others as opportunity arises. Lord, tonight we certainly thank you for salvation. We certainly thank you that salvation is not dependent upon our works, but upon our everything that you did. And we thank you for the miracle of salvation. And help us as your people to continue to walk by faith, by the power of your Holy Spirit. Lord, I pray that you would comfort your people tonight. We recognize that your shed blood at the cross washes away all sin, all of it. You've done the work. I pray, Lord, that we would live holy lives before you, but knowing that when we fail, we come and we run back to you. We get right with you. We understand what you did for us again. Lord, I want to pray for anyone here this evening. 
who has not yet placed their faith and trust in you for salvation alone. Have you never done that? You need to do that. You can't keep any law. You can't be better than anyone else to get right with God. You need to admit you're a sinner. And come to Christ and ask him to wash away your sins. Put your faith and trust in him. If you haven't done that, do that right now. Do it right now. Lord Jesus, just pray this prayer. Lord Jesus, I come before you. I am broken. I humble myself before you. I am a sinner. I am a lawbreaker. I can't save myself. So I'm crying out to you. Save me. Thank you for dying on the cross for me. place my faith and trust in you right now for salvation and you alone help me to walk with you fill me with your spirit in Jesus name amen